0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. On News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com or find us on Twitter. We're at Talks Science. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be speaking to the first Egyptian astronaut, Sarah Sabri. Uh, she was speaking at the Tech Summit and she... Is talking about the overview effect, this extraordinary change in perspective that apparently happens to astronauts as they look out the window and see planet Earth for the first time from space. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from the University of Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. Ruth, our first story has to do with something we've covered a few times in this program, chronic pain.
0: It does, Jonathan. This is new research that came out this week. It was in Nature Neuroscience and it's from the University of California at San Francisco. And and I suppose chronic pain is something that we don't really understand that well. It's something that is thought to impact you know, between 13 and 36% of the Irish population. So that translate to, translates into millions of people worldwide. And as we all know, it's resulted in the prescription of loads of powerful opioid medicines uh, that, that have had a really negative impact in in countries all over the world. And I suppose what we understand now is that chronic pain isn't just a longer version of acute pain, like when you burn yourself or you stub your toe. It's actually a different disease where your brain's normal circuitry has been rewired over a long period of time. So you can be getting pain signals to your brain, even sometimes when there's no tissue damage or another something causing the pain. Um, And of course, it's really difficult to characterize because while this chronic pain is universal in many people, their experience of it is different. So it's impacted on by signals from your body. But two patients with exactly the same back injury might experience very different forms of chronic pain because, of course, our emotional state, our expectation of pain, they all feed into it. So it's been a bit of a scientific conundrum. So what these researchers did was they actually implanted four recording devices into the brains of of four people. And these people had all, three of them had strokes and they had chronic pain after their stroke and one of them had phantom limb pain and they they implanted these electrodes into two regions in the front of the brain that are associated with pain one of them more with the kind of emotional feeling of pain and one of them more with i suppose the the cognitive perception of physical pain and they they went about their lives with these implants in their brains for uh, for several months and at uh, regular intervals throughout the day they would describe their pain. So they would actually use a little diagram of their body and they would label where they had acute, you know, worse pain, less worse pain. And they would stimulate the receptors at the same time. So they had a little button, they would turn them on and the recorders would record what was going on in their brain at the time. And the researchers were then able to bring together those two bits of information to actually be able to read the signal of pain and anticipate what kind of chronic pain somebody was feeling. So they've actually come up what they see as a biomarker for chronic pain. So by by reading these brain waves, they know now when these patients are experiencing chronic pain and they were able to localize it to one particular region in the brain uh, rather than the other one. And they were also able to compare it to acute pain. So these very willing subjects were, were very good. They, they got burned in the lab, so they had a little painful burn on their arm. But they were able to see with the electrodes that the, the stimulus for the pain Came was in a different part of the brain. So, so it really is picking out for us for the very first time that the brain activity that underlies chronic pain is different to the brain activity underlying acute pain. And that potentially changes the entire way that we think about treating chronic pain. I mean, clearly, you know, the drugs that we give for acute pain are not going to work. And maybe we need to be looking at different kinds of treatment like deep brain stimulation or treatments that maybe block those electrical pathways in this part of the brain that are sort of turning on inappropriately and giving people this chronic pain, which, which is obviously having a huge impact.
1: We were only talking about mind reading last week and how everyone's brain is slightly different, Ruth. You know, is the same area activated in the brains of these people? Could you do, you know, develop a device that sits in a specific spot in the brain or would that be different for everybody?
0: So the biomarkers were different. The pattern across every, these four people, it was different, but the, the location in the brain seemed to be in exactly the same place. And I think that's what's really exciting about this. They were actually able to identify the areas that have the biomarkers for chronic pain. So that makes it much more likely that they'll actually be able to come up with a usable therapy or an intervention based on this work. So it's great to see because it's such a huge issue.
1: Uh, okay, Jessamyn, our second story has to do with toddlers. <laughs>
2: That's right. Toddlers, everybody loves them. And what everybody really loves is doing a study that requires you to collect stool samples from toddlers in order <laughs> to figure out if they'll become obese. So the brave researchers at the University of Sorbonne in Paris uh, wanted to look at the gut bacteria of about 500 children when they were three and a half years old. They collected the stool samples then, and they were trying to correlate different parts of the microbiome with the BMI of these children or the body mass index at five years old. Um, and what they found is something that's it's quite interesting, and it kind of mirrors parallel results um, that have been found in adults, that the ratio of two specific groups of bacteria, the Firmicutes and the Bacteroidetes, um, at three and a half, is associated with whether or not the toddlers had what's considered an obese BMI at age five. So basically, if they had more of these Bacteroidetes in their, uh, in their microbiome, that made them less likely to be obese And the researchers think this is because these different classes of gut bacteria kind of affect how much fat we absorb. So you can remember it like this, the more firmicutes you have, the more likely you are to be a firm cutie, um, which most toddlers are of course. Um, but the, the ratio of these two uh, groups of bacteria... I think is called... you spent
1: like two seconds on that one.
2: I spent a long time <laughs> coming up with this. I'll have you know. <laughs> but you can also call it the F to B ratio. And this has actually been studied before in adults as an obesity marker. There's actually kind of mixed opinions on this um, because there's a lot of different factors that can go into obesity. You know, as we know, there's a lot of lifestyle associated factors. And it's not just that these are factors associated with obesity, but these actually influence the microbiome. So So things like diet, physical activity, food additives, food contaminants, antibiotics, physical activity, um, these change the composition of the microbiota in adults. And what's interesting about this study is starting to look at this in toddlers. You know, we already know that if you disrupt the gut microbiome in infancy, like this can change your chances of getting type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease. And we already know that in adults, there's these differences between low BMI and high BMI people in the microbiome. This clearly starts really early in life, though. So the next questions are, like, what, what is determining it? Like, what is causing this difference? And are there any possible interventions that could have positive health outcomes later in life? Because if we're trying to treat obesity in adults, in some sense, that may be already too late. And we're still kind of picking out the pieces in the microbiome of why.
1: I'll decide my own questions. Thank you. But what is causing this?
2: <laughs> well, if you think you know, you should apply for grant funding.
1: Right, but um, the, the, all joking aside, the the is the food affecting um, the microbiome? Is that possible, or could this be something that they just happen to have? I mean, uh, obviously, yeah, well, if, if the they're given question, poor quality right? food early on, is that is that what's immediately affecting that, or do they think it's something genetic?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are some ways in which um, what you eat, but also activity levels can affect uh, microbiome populations. And we know increasingly that exposure to antibiotics, which lots of sick kids have to take, um, can wipe out the gut microbiome and cause it to have to be reestablished. But there's probably also genetic factors here, right? It's a complicated biological system that all these uh, external organisms are effectively
0: living in so and i think yeah, how you arrive into the world as well you know whether you have a normal hmm. delivery or you're born by c-section coming straight out of a sterile environment so lots of different factors
2: at play yeah yeah exactly um, there's so many ways that microorganisms are coming into the body and so many ways in which they affect uh how we live and survive
1: great our third story um Ruth, is to do with prosthetics and getting really um, advanced in providing a, a full sensory experience to those who have lost their limbs.
0: Yeah, so we're kind of talking again about phantom limb syndrome. So, you know, obviously sometimes you do get chronic pain with that, but 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 people also have something uh, called phantom limb sensation, where they actually can feel uh, the limb that is missing. They they actually their brain is telling them that the hand or the foot that's missing is still there, and they can actually feel what's going on there. Um, and and researchers in Switzerland looked at twenty six people who experience phantom hands. And what they were interested in is seeing could they replicate some sense of sensation or touch for these people? And what they did was they placed a device with changeable temperature on the residual limb, so so maybe on the upper arm that was still left. And they then changed the temperature of that little sensor. And they were able, to, the participants were able to feel warmth as the temperature got warmer in their phantom hands. And they could tell different temperatures apart. But the feeling was very much that it was in their hand for 17 of them, and they've called this phantom thermal sensation. Um, And the hypothesis is that after an amputation, the nerves in the skin that would have connected to the hand remain there. So if you're stimulating those nerves, you're giving the feeling that the hand is experiencing. So then what they did for nine of the subjects, they created a little wearable sensor called a mini touch and they put it on their prosthetic finger. And they connected that sensor to a little metal plate, which was put on their residual arm. And that little metal plate heats up or cools down, relaying the profile that the sensor on the finger is feeling. So so you can see where this is going. They then got the participants to touch different objects with their prosthetic hand, so some glass objects, some metal objects, and some plastic objects. And, And the subjects were blindfolded, so they didn't know what they were touching. And actually, just based on the heat conductivity that the little sensor on the prosthetic finger was picking up, they were able to differentiate between those three objects that they were picking up with their prosthetic hands. They were able to do it as well as they could with the remaining hand on the other side wow. and so, yeah, it's really, really amazing so and for the participants, they report you know this amazing feeling of of their hand being there and feeling this temperature. And in you know, they, they really want to now integrate this into prosthetics, but it's great because it's not invasive. So we're not going in to actually touch people's nerves. It's just happening on the skin. And in a really lovely part of the study, you know, one of the, the subjects wanted to have this so they could have the sensation of holding their child's hand as they were walking along, that feeling of warmth, you know, that, that you get from holding someone's hand. So, you know, it's really great, in a way, really simple science, but, but really incredible.
1: Yeah, in the case of my children, um the prosthetic arm would also need to feel stickiness because that's usually what I get when I try to hold on of my children's hands. Um Jessamine, our final story has to do with Formula 1 race car drivers, who are not often the subject of r- research as far as I'm aware.
2: No, this is definitely an unusual study and uh, maybe the first of its kind. And for anyone who's ever tried to hold on to a sneeze while driving, Um, you know, until you're done changing lanes or turning, like this story is really for you. Uh, Researchers in Japan wanted to understand whether taking part in activities that rely on vision, such as race car driving, might affect blinking, right? So we think of blinking as random, um, something that's just sort of happening, we're not really aware of it most of the time, but it's part of our visual system, and the brain does seem to avoid blinks happening at important times. Now, blinking rate can be highly variable between people. Most people blink between 10 and 30 times per minute, except right now when you're thinking about it a lot. So don't count this as good data. Um, (laughs) Past studies have shown that blinks happen a lot more than would be needed just to keep the eye moist. So there does seem to be some amount of brain control happening here. Uh, Researchers from the NTT communication science laboratories in Japan decided to study formula race car drivers by placing eye trackers on their helmets as they drove um, hundreds of laps to try to see if there was any pattern in terms of the courses uh, as to where these people were blinking. And if you think about it, this is especially relevant for race car drivers because every blink is basically a fifth of a second where the world just goes dark. And if you're driving at 350 kilometers per hour, that's like 20 meters of just lost vision where anything could happen. And so maybe it's not a surprise that what the researchers found is that these drivers tended not to blink when they were changing speed or changing direction. Hmm. So they blinked more on straightaways. They didn't blink when they were accelerating or braking or turning. And interestingly, they tended to blink at quite similar positions along the track. And they had very similar blinking patterns, more similar than you would think a bunch of separate people would have. So to me, this is really interesting because some of those, you know, autonomic type body functions like blinking, we think, oh, that's just kind of happening but it's definitely affected by cognitive load to some extent and the, the process that you're engaging in here, something that is um, very mentally demanding and very dangerous. You know, if you blink at the wrong time and you're driving a race car, that could be very bad for you. So, of course, the brain is getting involved at a small level. Um, and it's interesting to think how this might uh, expand to other things that we do in our daily lives where maybe we're blinking more or less um, without even being aware of it.
1: That's a great story. Dr. Justine Fairfield from the University of Galway and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you very much. This is future proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, my next guest is an astronaut who was selected from seven thousand citizens to go into space at the age of twenty nine. She was the first Egyptian astronaut, the first Arab woman in space, and the first woman from the African continent to go to space. She'll be speaking at the Dublin Tech Summit next week. Her name is Sarah Sabri. Welcome to the program, Sarah. Um, it's it's a pleasure to speak with you. We've had a number of astronauts on the uh, the pro- program, but this is an extraordinary experience that, that you've had. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got to space?
3: Thank you. Thank you for for having me here. I'm really excited to visit Dublin also and attend the events. I got to space. It was a crazy journey. There was no clear path because I grew up in Egypt. In Egypt, we don't have a human space-wide program, so there was not really something that I could aim for or kind of work and then apply to. So... But I chose to be prepared anyway. And I applied to this program where, you know, you can easily stop yourself from applying and saying, oh, I'm never going to be selected or anything like there's stuff like that. But I think it's just about trying to find those opportunities or making them. And that's how I got to space really was just about pushing and pushing and working really, really hard.
1: Tell me a little bit about your background, Sarah.
3: I grew up in Egypt, so I um, I got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, focusing on mechatronics. And back then I also minored in biology and chemistry. Then I moved to Italy for my master's. I got my master's in biomedical engineering, did some research in um, stem cell development, then worked on robotic surgery for a year. Then I worked in Berlin um, at a tech startup as the deputy CTO. We worked on augmented reality, mobile applications, Then I I started working on bioastronautics research, so more on the physiology side of what astronauts experience in space in terms of what happens to their bones, their muscles, their cardiovascular system. Then from there, I founded a company, it's called Deep Space Initiative. What we do is we're trying to make space more accessible by providing opportunities in research and education and working on the legal side as well. And that's how I got selected to go to space from all of the work that I've been doing and the community work that I do in Egypt as well. So I do some work there. And yeah, now I'm currently doing my PhD in aerospace. So my research focus is on spacesuit, planetary spacesuit engineering, and also on space law. So I work on space law and policy because there's a lot there that needs to be worked on. We're still very, very far from. Having uh, the, the the proper laws in order to govern govern basically, you know what we do in space or how we are able to use space like here on Earth, like how collaboration between countries work. So there's a lot there. So my background is very very technical, but I'm finding myself shifting into the law area after my space fight, especially because just so I understand how important that is.
1: Yeah, it's it, I mean it's a it's a wild west out there still, and and there's lots of people trying to figure out how best to to put some sort, of, some sort of structure so that it doesn't turn into a land grab uh, and that there's some sort of equity. And, and there's a sort of a need, I suppose, to start again and better when it comes to space exploration compared to how we've explored other places in the past. But I wanted to talk about your space flight um, before we get into spacesuits and so on. What what um, what was the mechanism? Was it a competition? Or you were on uh, Blue Origin's NS-22 uh, which is Jeff Bezos's um, space uh, uh, initiative? H- how did you get on that uh, on that flight, and what was it like?
3: There's a there's a company called Space for Humanity, and they've they've come up with a program. Well, they they founded this program called Citizen Astronaut Program, and it's the first of its kind. No other program like this exists. So, because usually astronauts are selected based on their governments, so the government selects their astronauts and supports them. And there is no other program that selects astronauts in this way. So this is the first of its kind. I am only their second citizen astronaut ever. So the first is the space, I think like two months before me, and then I'm the second citizen astronaut. And um, what they do is they select people based on their leadership experience, the potential for global impact, the community work that they do. They send them to space to experience something called the overview effect, which is the shift in perspective that happens to you when you see earth from space. And then you have to sign a contract, basically, and use this experience to benefit life on Earth. So their slogan is to space uh, for Earth. So we have to use this to benefit life on Earth. And everything that we do after a space flight is for that. So going to space is just the start of this. And that was my first space flight. And I'm still training and I'm still continuing in order to hopefully get to Mars. My goal is to live and work on Mars. So wow. that was the, my face flight experience, and yeah, I was. I'm very grateful, and it's still kind of crazy to think that I they selected me out of all of those thousands of people. But it's it's yeah, it's been a crazy journey, and I'm so just very very grateful to have been able to go through that.
1: So, talk to me about the experience of of being on that flight. What was it like? Because it feels kind of crazy? to find yourself in that situation, I would imagine. What was it like when you took off and what was it like looking out the window at Earth? This, describe this overview effect for us.
3: It's, it's a lot more profound than I thought it was going to be, honestly. Before going to space, you, know, you would hear astronauts talk about this overview effect. So they talk about how much more responsible they feel towards Earth, seeing this thin blue line, not seeing those lines on the map. So it was really, I thought, I mean, I knew... That it was gonna change something in me but i didn't know to this that it would be to this extent this profoundly and my space fight experience was so different too because because of my my background because of where i've lived because of all of the things that you know i think the overview effect is very personal too and i think it depends on your what you bring in to that and because i'm the i was the first person from my side of the world to have experienced something like this it was just so different. And because of my whole journey, I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. No one really understood. I didn't really feel understood anywhere. And I really felt like I was, I don't know, like I was normal, you know? So for me, when I went to space, it was, it felt like home for the very first time. And I know it's crazy to say that because well, space wants to kill you. You're not meant to survive there. (laughs) And, you know, it was it really felt like it was my calling almost like I was understood. I, I got it. Like I got why we do this. I got why humanity needs to explore space. And it's because Earth and space are not separate. They're not two separate things. Just one is part of the other. When we're talking like in our normal language, we're always using Earth and space and we're talking about them. And it's actually you're not going into space. You're just leaving Earth. And I think once you make that realization, once you kind of. When you're in that situation, it changes your whole perspective on 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 the world. So you have a much stronger relationship between Earth and space together, and also Earth as a whole because it's much smaller. And the interconnectedness between people, you know, it doesn't make sense to have those lines come up that separate people. Like it doesn't make sense to say uh, them and us, and you know. So it's really it changes all of that, and then you do feel a sense of responsibility to to change things. I think since coming back from space, I've been looking at the bigger problems and trying to solve those more than anything without being afraid at all. Like really, it's become, you know, I've been taking a lot bigger risks, especially, Mm. you know, I'm used to like talking the technical language, like my background is in engineering and then entrepreneurship. So like you have this business language, which is also another thing. And then since my space flights, I've been dealing more, with politics, with law, which is so different than anything I've ever, you know, that I've ever experienced so far, but it's, it's interesting and it's important. And I think going to space has pushed me to enter this new world, to like learn this new language, because I think we have to always take a step back and see why things are happening rather than just like, look at the, you know, what is happening and trying to help with those. It's like almost, you don't, you don't, you know, give money to a fisherman, but you teach them how to fish, right? So I think it's the same idea. When you go to space, you're always trying to take a step back and look at the big things. Like how do you, how do you influence those? So that's what I've been doing since my space flight. And that's what you what you what you strive for. So the overview effect is so different for so many different people. And for me, it has allowed me to develop this connection with the universe where I can't wait to go back, where it feels almost like Someone ripped me away from where I was meant to be, like where I finally felt like hmm. I like I was doing what I was meant to be doing on Earth, like in the world. And also to look back at Earth and be like, okay, no, we have to do something. This is our only home. We have to save it.
1: Talk to me about the Deep Space Initiative. What exactly are you, you doing there? Um, because there's sort of two sides to the coin of, of space exploration. We're seeing so much more... Um satellites being launched, we see you know um, citizen um, tourism in, in a way, uh, with uh, you know with Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk, there's a lot of stuff going up into space. H- how do you feel about it all and 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 what are you hoping to do with this deep space initiative?
3: Deep Space Initiative is a nonprofit, and our goal is to make space more accessible. So we do that by providing opportunities in research and education and also by kind of playing around with the legal side too so we have three departments that do that that do like all these three activities so we're targeting this problem through these three angles and um so far we've been able to provide opportunities like research opportunities for around over 100 people from all over the world which who otherwise would not be able to work in the field just because of their passports and that's something that i have experienced and all of us at dsi have experienced that. your passport dictate what type of opportunities you get in the world which does not make sense yeah so and that's what we try to do we, we, give, we give you the opportunity no matter where you are no matter where your passport is from and no matter your resources to like it doesn't make sense if you're not able to afford a specific course you need to be able to do that we need all of the countries to be able to work in the field and that's where also the education department comes in we're able to give you like to to to, to provide courses taught by former NASA you know researchers scientists former NASA astronauts you know or like people from ESSA from all over the world teaching courses about different topics in space so we usually deal with a specific topics. So we have astronaut health and performance, space architecture, space transportation systems. We're adding a few more now, but these are generally the ideas and these are very broad. And right. under those, you know, we have a lot of research questions. We have people from all over the world working on these. And that's what we're trying to do. And then the legal side, we're trying to influence the laws. So we're not a lobbying entity, but we, our goal is to educate congressmen and women about, you know, in the U S and all over the world, why, the laws that are now existing that are put in place don't make sense anymore. You know we should not be looking at space satellites or anything with space applications as weapons because they're not. They're aiding humanity, and that in turn needs to you know involve all parties around the world. And it's what's what the Outer Space Treaty has written down. But we need to promote that. We need to push for that. We need to, and that's how humanity is going to be pushed forward even more if our goal is to is to have humanity become multiplanetary. planetary We need help from everywhere. We can't just keep starting over every time we have a problem. You need to recruit the people who are experienced in that specific topic and continue working on that. Research would never evolve if we keep starting over. We need to be able to hire those people. We need to be able to collaborate with internationals because that's the only way we're gonna be able to move forward in terms of like space exploration or humanity.
1: I feel like space is one of those few domains where we can afford to be almost um, naively optimistic in, in a way, isn't it? Because the the, the real world where we live in uh, is so complicated. It's so already um, divided up between different um, powers, uh, different individuals, tech companies or whatever. But space still seems very virgin to me. It seems very... Um, very pure still and it sounds like you also have this optimistic view of how we should go about exploring space and and making it open to everyone which I think is fantastic because there is a there is a concern that when you know when billionaires uh, or even you know government space agencies are deciding exactly who gets to to go to space or gets to do research in space that you know it won't be very Equal, particularly for countries like Egypt or, or other African countries that don't have space programs, but probably have a lot of expertise, a lot of interest, um, and and um, and have people like you who really want to go out and 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 explore what our universe ha- has in store.
3: Exactly, and I am an eternal optimist, so I'm, I'm looking always looking at this, and and I mean I'm very biased here, like I have to admit, but I don't think any other field in the world influences humanity's future as much honestly because it touches everything it touches medicine it touches you know the construction it touches everything communication electronics technology everything everything so I think we cannot live without looking at space and I think we're so dependent on it now that it's so difficult to separate you know what we do on earth than from what we've used from space and I think honestly like in terms of sending more and more people to space I might be, like, that's my opinion, to be honest, but I think we do need to be sending more and more people to space, especially mm. leaders of countries, because this perspective that you get from going to space, you kind of stop thinking about the little things. You kind of stop thinking about maybe the materialistic things or what countries need themselves, but more on the what humanity needs. And yeah. I think we need to be leaders to look at those. I, so, I think that's an interesting if,
1: idea. There's, there's probably a few politicians I would love to see go to space, <laughs> A, a yeah. portion of those I'd like to see come back, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I mean certainly that's what you know they say travel does too. You know it opens your mind. When you hear about you know far right politics and and you know the rise of you know fascism light in in America, you do wonder what perspectives these people have been given through their through their um, youth and and into their professional life. Maybe we do need to send them all to space um which which is is not not a crazy idea um finishing off what you said you wanted to go and 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 live on mars um do you think that we'll have a human colony on mars within your lifetime
3: within my life i know you're young (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i mean within my lifetime we might have a few missions within my lifetime i truly believe that so i think but whether or not they would come back, that's still questionable. like I think it's the goal is to of course bring them back, yeah, but for me, for example, before my space flights, I was you know because going to going to Mars is not gonna be like a fun or comfortable or anything like that trip, you know, and there is a big risk of not coming back, and it is gonna be a minimum of a two year trip, so it is a big you know, like you're really removing yourself from everyone you know on earth, and before going to space, it was always, yeah. Only if they bring me back, you know. Like it was, it because it's a tough decision. You know, it's a big sacrifice that you have to make. Yeah. But now, if you if you tell me tomorrow I can go to Mars and not come back, I'll do it. You know, it's just about like how much you believe in this and is how 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 worth it is it for you.
1: you. You know, if you could go now, you might. As you get older, you you get attached to some things. Um. And as when it's ready for you, I wonder will you feel the same? It'd be really interesting to speak to you um when when that opportunity arises uh, but for now thank you so much for joining us and um, the first egyptian astronaut speaking at the tech summit next week sarah sabri thanks for your time
3: thank you for having me i really enjoyed it
1: right it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week we were speaking uh in the news round about sweat and apparently Inhaling someone's sweat could help ease your social anxiety, according to some research. Uh, Eve on Twitter says, not on the dart anyway, Uh, I agree. Uh, And also we were talking about gender disparity uh, and and that um, there is a huge difference between how women fare in terms of publishing and success within the world of science. Someone tweeted, not only in the fields of science. No, no, indeed. But um, as a science program, that's what we covered. We were talking to Alexander Huth, um, if you remember, from the University of Texas as well. We interviewed him about um, his research where he was getting a functional MRI scanner, so a brain scanner. And then he was decoding what he saw on the scanner into words. Um, Now, with relatively poor success, but every once in a while, this amazing translation happened and... It's quite exciting because, uh, you know, it opens the, the, the world to really understanding what people are thinking about without them even saying it. But uh, Nathan on Twitter says, great topic, really enjoyed that. Now, the question for many men is, can we read the minds of our partners? Thanks for the great show. I think um, for some people, uh, their partner's mind will be a total black box. I don't think that's the case for my wife um, in particular. I think I'm very easy to read. I'm, I think I'm very predictable which doesn't make for a very exciting life, actually, <laughs> I think about it. But, um, but I, 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 I I think I, w- I don't surprise her that often, in terms of what I'm thinking anyway. I mean, I certainly do surprise her in other ways, but not in terms of my motivations of what I'm thinking. So I think it depends on the person, Nathan. Another says, um, are they able to use this technology on people who cannot verbally consent to these brain scans? No, because the technology requires you to train it on somebody. And as uh, as we heard from Alexander you can just think of other stuff, and then and once you start thinking of other stuff, the brain scanner will pick that up. So it's not like it, it reads what you're thinking um, and is able to read everything. If you say bananas, 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 it'll it'll read bananas. So you can sort of block out your thoughts by focusing on something else if you don't want your brain being to, being read. But as I say, this this technology can only be used if you're if you're trained on it. So someone has to consent to training on it first. Um, We were speaking to Ryan Carney, uh, who's a biologist at Gettysburg College, Pennsylvania, about why humans can't breathe underwater. And someone says, what is the longest someone has held their breath for underwater? Well, I mean, it's quite at this stage, it's so easy to Google that. It's um, like delegating a Google search to me is 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 really almost disrespectful of my time. But I'm going to do it anyway. And the answer, because I was curious myself, the, the answer is 24 minutes and 37 seconds, which is insane. An insane amount of time, considering I can't make it to three minutes. And three minutes is a good, that's a good time. 24 minutes and 37 seconds. Um, His name is Budimir Sobat. Um, uh, And that is something, just the feeling of not not getting that oxygen freaks me out. Another says, it it can't be healthy to live in an underwater habitat for that long. Would the pressure not affect your brain? No, the guy who's living underneath, he's actually living in sort of a cabin. He's like, he's not in the water. Although I was in Burning Man once and I saw a guy and he was a performance artist and he did suspend himself in water for the entire week. He had like a a regulator hooked up to an oxygen tank outside this water, large sort of vat of water that you see like sort of magicians use. And he basically lived all of Burning Man inside the vat. Morning, noon and night, whenever I passed, he was there just floating. Takes all folks. Um... Another says, have you heard of the Bajau? The genetically, um, they're more genetically adapted to free dive for longer. I have not, but I, I have a link here that I've been sent to by Marais, which I'm going to, um, I'm going to make it my Sunday read. Um, I haven't heard of them. Very cool. Um, right. That's it from us on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to Marais and Steve Daunt, Simon Keane, and Hugo de Silva on sand. We'll be back with more on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
0: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10.
1: On Newstalk.